This is episode number 47 with a special edition episode to kick off your football season called What Does Football Teach Us? everyone and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super excited to give you guys this unique episode to kick off your football season. I've had the fortunate opportunity to speak with and interview some of the great names in football up to this point in the podcast. I wanted to compile a number of clips from these interviews to give you guys one jam-packed episode on all the things that football can teach us in order to get closer to the best version of ourselves. You're going to hear brief clips from eight different individuals that I had the pleasure of interviewing. Some of these are names that you'll definitely recognize, such as Emmett Smith, three-time Super Bowl champ and all-time NFL rushing leader. There's DeMarco Murray, 2014 NFL Offensive Player of the Year and three-time Pro Bowler. There's Jake Long, who was the first overall pick in the 2008 NFL Draft. Then there's Todd McCullough, former Florida Gator starting linebacker. Sean Merriman, former San Diego Chargers linebacker. Jim Fassel, the New York Giants head coach from 1997 to 2003. And finally, Jim Tunney, who was nicknamed the Dean of NFL Referees after having had a 31-year NFL career consisting of three Super Bowls. In this episode, you're going to hear stories from all these guys' football careers. You'll hear lessons they learned along the way, challenges they had, what allowed them to be great leaders, what lessons they took with them after their football career, and much more. I'm going to come back on and introduce you to each guest very briefly before I play their clips so that you know who you're listening to. Real quick before we get into the episode, if you like this football-specific episode, let me know. This is the first time I've ever done something like this and would love to hear your feedback and what you thought. If you're enjoying it, send it to your friend that you're watching football with this weekend to kick off their football season as well. That way you can share with them your favorite stories and your thoughts on the episode. Also, if you enjoy it, feel free to give a quick rating and review at the end of the show. If you're on the Apple Podcast app, all you've got to do is scroll to the bottom and click write a review and write down your quick feedback. That's going to be one of the best ways that you can help support the show and help it grow and get into more ears. Those of you who live in Nashville, I have a live event coming up in less than two weeks. It's on Saturday, September 14th at 10 a.m. at Yeehaw Brewing Company. It's going to be a 30-minute workout followed by a 30-minute live podcast interview with 10th fittest man in the world, Will Morad. There's going to be food, there's going to be drinks, all the works right here to kick off your Saturday. If you want to feel good about all those beers, glasses of wine, and Bloody Marys that you're going to have that Saturday, come get a sweat with us beforehand and then leave inspired to have a great day. You can get your $15 ticket now at nickcarrier.com slash events. Hope to see you guys there. But for now, it's time. And to kick us off with what does football teach us, here is former Florida Gator linebacker on bouncing back quickly, Todd McCullough. I think one of the greatest lessons, why I always encourage team sports, um, you know, as an athlete with football, um, you know, probably one of the reasons I was training people and not continue playing is I had a surgery almost every off season. So I had mm-hmm. like three knee surgeries, two shoulder Jeez. surgeries. So it's like you earn a starting job in Florida and then you got to earn it all over again. And, and I had four different, I think looking back, right, I think what prepared me as life as an entrepreneur, I even realizing it is all the surgeries. Then I had four different linebacker coaches at Florida. I had four different defense coordinators and three head coaches. So normally you get a starting job at the University of Florida. You have it until you screw up. Right. Well, every year I had to re, you know, learn my job, earn my job and had to go through an extensive rehab program. And so what that builds built for me, it was like, <laughs> you don't have time to sit on your laurels. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it don't sound like harsh. Other than maybe your mom, no one really gives a shit. Yeah. Just, that's the truth, right? It's like, I want to see you do well. But if you're suffering over there, like not many people, like it's rare to have people that truly, other than your tight group of family and friends who care. And so I just didn't see the benefit 
of me sitting around like licking my wounds. And yeah. so when I got laid off at Merrill, I went straight to like a lady cut my hair, had asked me to train her. Wow. Perfect. While I was cutting, while I was working at Merrill Lynch. It's like, I don't do that. Oh, okay. And a lot of these times we're kind of pointing to it, right? Because she wasn't the first one that had asked me that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I don't do that. I, I manage stocks and bonds for people. Yeah. <laughs> They're portfolios, right? God was just like telling me what to do. And I was right. really listening. Um, and so I started training. I would drive all the way across town, which you know, anything in LA, that is a pain in the ass. I would get to their house. They had a private gate. Um, and I would drive all the way across town and back for 50 bucks, which I... And I would spend... Almost losing money. <laughs> I was literally losing money. And I would, you know, they were... I would literally have to hop the gate to the side because they were still sleeping. And I would knock on their bedroom door and the uh, the husband would wake up smoking smoking some weed, mm-hmm. waking up. And he would open the door for me. And I would sit there and watch, you know, the stock market for him for the first 20 minutes. And then when his wife came up, the woman that cut my hair, we would train. So I would spend the three hours of my day making 50 bucks. Wow. You know? But it was, um, why was it worth it to you then? Oh, shit, you had, to, you had to pay the bills. Yeah. There wasn't no one else giving, <laughs> I got you, giving you anything, you know? And okay. I knew, again, that there was, I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know if I'd do it long term, but yeah. I knew that I was good at this. Yeah. Like, I could be really You felt good. like there was some kind of maybe future there. Yes. Okay. Something along those lines. So, yeah, that would be my thing is for all those out there, again, ask yourself, are you willing to de- dedicate at least the next 10 years, if not your life? Just some sort of purpose. And again, mm-hmm. for me, that still to this day is sharing what I've learned from yoga and athletics to help people have access to a positive mindset. Next, I bring you three-time Pro Bowler and 2014 NFL Offensive Player of the Year, DeMarco Murray. He talks about hard work, respect, how he was a leader in the locker room, and much more. Hope you guys enjoy it. So I want to ask you where your work ethic came from and why do you think it's unique? I think it's unique because it's it's literally every single day. I'm always trying to better myself, no matter what it is. And and just like we spoke about earlier, it's just me trying to better myself and trying to be the best version of myself every single day, no matter what the circumstances are. Um, and you know, playing college at Oklahoma, playing in the NFL, there was always guys preparing. There's always running backs. There's there's a lot of great talent around you. So what are you doing differently? to separate yourself from them in the long run. So mm-hmm. for me, it's all about being mentally tough. And I, I think the definition uh, for me is just being your best regardless of circumstances. No matter if it's cold as shit outside, right. I'm going to continue to work out. No matter if it's hot, I'm going to continue to work out. And if you're sick, if you're not feeling up to it, whatever you have to do to get yourself going and, and, and kind of prepare and get your mind right, I think that's something that I've always been fortunate to do. I've always had a willpower to do things that not many other people are willing to do. How would you hold people accountable in the NFL locker room? So for me, just like you mentioned, um, I, I've never kind of been involved in this spin class or as far as I was just a consumer. Now I'm actually a part owner. So having to deal with Paige and Allison, great, great girls, very smart, intelligent. Um, but it's all about accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter where you are in life, you know, whether it's my wife, whether it's my kids, you know, people look at you in a certain way and you know, there's questions and, and, there's, and there's answers. You, I want answers. You know, I don't want to, it's an old phrase, Um, you know, don't tell me about the pain, show me the baby. You know, mm. that's for, I just want to know the numbers. I want to know, hey, what are we doing here? What are we doing there? I want to see results and I want to see what the hell we're getting ourselves into. Yep. And you can't, you can't just talk about it. You have to show results and it's just, it's kind of a, I've lived in the, you know, show me, show me world. Like you can't just show up yet. Like, Football, you got to, hey, you got to do your job. You got to score touchdowns. You got to score points in order to, you know, get that check, you know, mm-hmm. the big check that you're reaching for. So I think accountability 
more so holding it from your friend's standpoint, but you got to hold yourself accountable first before you can hold other people accountable. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm making sure that everything, every box is checked off. Hey, I'm doing this right. I'm doing this right. Yeah, you know, I may not feel comfortable with this, but let me make sure that all my shit is squared before I can try to get on someone else. I think that's the, this is being a leader, you know, when Mm -hmm. you, you can't have any loose ends. You can't have a, a freaking hole in your boat. You can't let water sink yeah. through and then try to come at someone else with, hey, what are you doing over there? But hey, then they'll look at you like, well, your shit's not done. Mm-hmm. You know? So you have to always make sure that your accountability, you're accountable for yourself. Um, so in the locker room, you know, I was, I was kind of a, um, I wouldn't say I was, I wasn't a vocal leader. I wasn't a guy that will call the whole team up and I, I led by example, you know, like I, I just mentioned earlier. Um, I would make sure that I'm there early every single day. I'm yeah. the first one there. I'm the last one there. I'm not fumbling the ball. I'm not dropping the ball. Um, there was never a time in my career where I was singled out for, Hey, he was late. Yeah. He's not doing this. It was always, Hey, look at him. He's doing that the right way. He's doing this the right. So you never want yourself for me in, Especially, I never want to be the guy that will let the team down. Yeah. So whether it was dropping a ball, being late, um, you know, because if you're late, if we can't count on you to be on time, how can we count on you in the fourth quarter? Yeah, 100%. You know, when the game's online, two minutes left. So there, there, that plays a, a huge role. Now everyone knows with football comes injuries, but not everyone thinks that they're going to have 18 of them. In this episode, you'll hear how Jake Long, who was the first overall pick in the 2008 NFL Draft and his wife, Jackie, talk about the struggles they went through with injury after injury after injury and all the lessons they learned from it. So what was going through injury after injury like? It was terrible. You know, yeah. it really uh, it started weighing on me near the end of my career. Mm-hmm. But I had, uh, I've had 20 major surgeries altogether. I had two in college Lord. and 18 in the pros. So, um, yeah, it, it really started... Um, getting old near the end because you don't have an off season, right? The, yeah. the minute you get done, you have, I, I'd have the surgery and a lot of them were big injuries. So it would take four to six months before I could start playing. And so I'd spend the entire off season uh, working out in training and then, you know, being behind in training camp because I didn't get to practice and then just thrown in the game. So um, I was always a little behind the eight ball and I was always playing catch up. And I did that for eight years of my nine year mm-hmm. career. So it was it was really starting to get old. Mm-hmm. And it takes yeah. over every aspect of your life. You know, this yeah. is a personal trainer and mm-hmm. being involved in people's health and wellness. That you're not just recovering and rehabbing from an injury. You're changing your diet, changing your sleep, changing your activities. Like yeah. every single aspect of your life is affected by it and those around you. Mm-hmm. So vacations are out of the out of the picture. I mean, you're not you don't For take sure. a break. Like Jake is Jake yeah. was so focused on football and being the best football player that he could possibly be right. that like. You don't take a four-day vacation to go somewhere, mm-hmm. even, like, every morning, every day. Yeah, the like, trainers had to tell me to take a vacation yeah. one time because <laughs> I was there for so many hours, and, like, I didn't take a break, and so. Yeah. But yeah, like, our first daughter, um, I wasn't around for, like, the first year of her life because mm. we had her during training camp, then, so, training camp, you never out, and then the season, it wasn't around, and then I blew up my ACL, and so I was rehabbing. That was your second ACL, because your first ACL you did when I was oh, pregnant. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> So then I, you know, and then I had a staph infection. Like it was trying to come back from all yeah. that. So I, I was in rehab for six, seven hours a day yeah. and then I was just exhausted. So it was, um, that's why I've really been enjoying being dad. I mean, usually when you say <laughs> in sickness and health, when you get married, you know, the sickness and health thing, like <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit really, further along yeah. in life. 
Well, we've gotten tested a million times with injuries, and I couldn't have made it through it without her. Um, she was always there. I mean, she was eight months pregnant, and I had a staph infection. She was giving me a PICLINE IV, administering it twice a day for two and a half months. Like, it, the thing, she's so um, selfless, and um, it carries over to being a mother, and she's fantastic at it. The worst one was my Achilles. My 2016, I was with the Vikings and um, just got picked up from them and was playing really well. And that was my fourth game and was starting again and really starting to feel good and, and get back into everything and uh, pop my Achilles. And that was that was the last play of my career. Yeah. Um, you know, that was year nine and I already had all the surgeries and was – you know, 10 was always my goal, so I was hoping to finish 9, maybe go to 10, maybe be done after 9. I don't know, but uh, I really wanted to have that decision. I know a lot of times guys don't uh, go out when they wanted to, but mm-hmm. that was that was the hardest one because I was just starting to feel good again, and um, and then my Achilles popped. So yeah, that was tough. yeah, that was a tough one. Yeah, it sounds like a brutal injury. I feel like I couldn't even imagine what the pain was. Oh, it was terrible. Like. It was terrible. I, I thought... Because I was in a pass set, and I was just blocking the guy like I do a million times. And mm-hmm. then I thought the running back kicked me, and I thought I broke my ankle. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on the ground rolling around, and the trainers come out, and I'm complaining about the running back breaking my <laughs> breaking my ankle. <laughs> and they're like, Jake, like, no one was around you. And like uh-huh. right when he said that, I'm like, I blew up my Achilles. They're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. So, that yeah, I thought the running back broke my ankle. Yeah, that's, that's- <laughs> Yeah, I think throughout my entire football career was just like – perseverance right because you're going to get knocked down a bunch uh, and a lot and even the greatest players ever to play get knocked down and it's those guys that can learn from it can watch the film can like like take it personally but not take it personally to where like you got to shrug it off and go play the next play but um i think just perseverance you know because i had bad plays i had bad games i had all these injuries but i didn't care i every time i went on i'm like i'm the best i'm gonna show you i'm the best and um, just try it. That was my driving force. Mm-hmm. Is that is that like literally when you got hurt, what was – is that just like I just want to be the best? Was that just kind of kept going through your head right. about just keep getting back up every time? Yeah. Well, I remember every time I got hurt, I, like I blew up my ACL. Um, I don't know. What, what year was that? Was Which one, year? darling? Know, my first one. I don't know. It was the it second was to last game of the year. So it was right. the second December. last game. 14. Anyways, no, 13. December So 13. I had surgery middle of January. I'm like, so I started, the second I had surgery, I'm like, I started counting off. All right, what's six months? Because six months is like the earliest you can come back. I'm like, I'll come back in six months or less, and I'll start the season. I did. And so, you know, like every time I was like, all right, how much, how many, am I going to have to miss games? Can I play through this? I remember I, like I blew out my shoulder uh, one game and. <clears throat> In Miami, I blew out my shoulder on a Sunday afternoon. I played Thursday, the Thursday night game. Jeez. And so it was, if I could play, if I could walk and play, I, I was, I was going to play. You know now what this I mean? is a I never PSA to... to never do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay? nah, that was, I was done. Like, it was so bad. It was bad. Like I should have sat out when uh, at times, but I just, I, the type of player and person I was, like, I, I just, I couldn't. You know, I think it's so hard when you're actually in the moment to be able to take that step back yeah. and be like, maybe this isn't good. You just want to play and, like, and compete. And like you're young and dumb and <laughs> like you, you recover quicker and all that stuff. I'm like, ah, yeah. I can play. Like I played eight days or nine days out of surgery. I, I, 
I got rolled up in a week four preseason, had a grade three MCL and torn meniscus. Played the next week until bye week, and then I had meniscus surgery and played, mm-hmm. you know. But, like, I just, I wanted to play, and, and I wasn't going to let anything stop me. Yeah. Which was dumb. Yeah, you were like a big dumb animal. <laughs> did you try worse. to stop him sometimes? Of course I yeah. did. Like maybe, maybe sweetie, you should wait longer than eight days from surgery to play in an NFL football game. Like maybe that's not the best idea. All right, guys, here he is, the goat, Emmett Smith. I was fortunate enough to ask him what separates a Super Bowl winning football team from the rest. So here he is, Emmett Smith. How's it going? I'm Nick Carrier. So I have a podcast called Best You Podcast where I interview people on how to become the best version of yourself. But I want to ask you, you know, you're a three-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, what does it take to for an NFL team to win a Super Bowl if you have to pick out one quality for a team to have? Um, probably, I would just say execution. Execution? Uh, without a doubt, you have to execute. Yeah. You cannot turn the football over. And you have to execute against your game plan. If you don't do those things... Uh, even if you are executing, you turn the ball over, you can also get beat by just turning the ball over. Uh, but if you don't turn the ball over and you execute against your game plan, you just increase your probability. So how do you think the teams were able to execute that you won Super Bowls with? Was it the practice that y'all put in? Or was it communication? Or what It's, com- it's a combination of all those things. Yeah. It, 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 there's a requirement of, 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 of focus and uh, discipline and, and uh, trust in the system. Yeah. And now from the coach's perspective, I bring you New York Giants head coach from 1997 to 2003, Jim Fassel. Jim talks about how to get players to respond to the coach. And he also talks about what makes Sean McVay so successful as a young coach in the NFL. So you're the Giants coach from 97 to uh, 2003. I'm interested. Um, is there anything at 2003 or what at 2003 did you wish that you knew back in 1997? You know, uh, it's a hard question. It's a great question. It's just a hard question, yeah. you know. Um, there's just a lot of little things. I, I couldn't name one big thing. I had great players that, that responded to me, and I made the guarantee one time, and the players came through. And um, you know, and, and New York's a great city, but you better win, right. okay? <laughs> you know. So you said that you got you were able to get players to respond to you. What do you think is the way to motivate the players in the best way to be able to respond um, to a coach in the most effective way possible? Well, if they know they can trust you, trust me. Now, the year I made the guarantee, okay, I had to shake it up a little bit. And uh, a guy the year before who was a rookie was our uh, special teams player of the year. Come back the next year. And we're not playing, and he's not playing worth a damn. And so I cut him. And then I said, I'm going to cut two of you every week until I clear that area. And so they went out, a couple of guys went out, and they went to Strahan and said, Strahan said, what did, he, what did he say to you? What did he say? He said he's going to cut two of us every week. He doesn't care. And Strahan says, don't mess with the man. He's on a mission. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so one one last question. Sean McVay, he actually went to a local high school here called Marish, and that's where I went to high school. So everybody who here is super excited about him. Um, I, I don't know if you know anything in particular too much about him, but what do you think makes him a super special coach at such a young age? Well, I mean, I get a little information because my son is a special, a special teams coordinator. Okay. Has been there for a long time. Okay. Um, so I get a little feedback from him. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he teaches guys – and he's always, he's never down. 
You know, there's a lot of coaches that get, you know, if a guy doesn't do anything right, they get all pissed off and scream at him and cussing at dog. He's level, 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 level. Like uh, Wade Phillips is and my son on special teams. The th- those are three leaders of the team, and they're all the same personality. Let's coach them. We don't have to yell at them. Ah, gotcha. That's really cool. And that's obviously something that's probably super hard to do in the NFL with so much ups and downs. Well, I appreciate it, Jim. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Now comes another first overall pick in the NFL draft. Steve Barkowski was selected first overall in 1975 in front of Walter Payton. He won Rookie of the Year that year and followed that up with a 10-year career with the Atlanta Falcons. You'll get to hear Steve talk about what it takes to be the best leader you can be. Hope you enjoy it. I, I learned a lot from that. I mean, I learned that that football, uh, I always knew it was the ultimate team game, but, you know, I, I felt like I could overcome whatever deficiencies there might be um, in that. Um, and, I, and I think the great leaders, you know, they, they come to realize that you become a great leader uh, by serving others, uh, by, by being an example to others, you know. So my whole work ethic changed. Attitude changed. Matter of fact, Second Corinthians five, I think it is verse seventeen, that says, "You know, if any man is in Christ, he becomes a new creation. Old things pass away, and behold, new things come." So, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of things that, I mean, I, I got credit for, but I didn't have a whole lot of uh, uh, influence on. You know, it was just all this whole spirit of God that now lived in me uh, took control of the way that I manifested myself to others, you know, and I think my teammates looked at that, respected it. Some of them didn't understand it, but, uh, they respected it nonetheless. And, and they saw that, you know, I was the la- first one on the practice field, last one off, you know, uh, I worked as hard as I could in the off season to make sure I was ready. So I never didn't let my teammates down and just all those things that, yeah, that you need to manifest as a leader. You know, if you're not willing to uh, to to do something that's going to make you a better football player, how can you espouse to others that you were supposed to be leading uh, mm-hmm. what they need to be doing? What do you think your biggest strength was as a leader? Yeah, let me just backtrack just a little bit on what you said. Yeah. I think I think that's profound. Um, you know, clearly, you know, clearly something that uh, <laughs> that I learned. You know, I mean, it, it, as I got intimate with my teammates and I tried to tried to motivate them, tried to. I tried to understand what they really wanted out of the game of football, you know, and, mm. and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, as a quarterback, you have a chance to, to, to really implement some of those things, you know, I mean, everybody wants to catch as many balls as they can as a receiver, you know, and all the, you know, running backs want to, you know, it, it's just trying to find out, go deep with them and trying to motivate them, uh, and trying, trying to say, man, look, I'm going to try to help you get that goal. And, and, uh, you know, you can count on me. I've got your back. Uh, whether it's a lineman having trouble with a guy that he's trying to block for that given week, you know, get him some help with the running back, chipping on his way out and running routes, you know, so on and so forth. There's little things you can do that really know that help them make your teammates know that you have bought in on their goals. Mm-hmm. And if you, if they achieve yours, guess what happens? You know, right. you get what you want, right? Yeah. Yep. So that's the amazing thing about serving others, you know, I mean, and, and like you're talking about, man, I mean, if, you know, the eating right and, and, and living right and doing, you know, doing right. Um, it's just hard to be wrong, you know, when, when you're around, I mean, you're doing that with the right motivation, you know, for your loved mm-hmm. ones, you know, I mean, maybe you don't care about yourself enough to do it, but I mean, do it for the people you love. And then at the end of the day, man, I mean, you're the one who ends up profiting from that. Okay, guys, imagine knocking unconscious four players in one high school football game. That's exactly what Sean Merriman did in high school and how he gained the nickname Lights Out. 
Sean was the 12th overall pick in the 2005 NFL Draft by the San Diego Chargers. He talks about his draft experience and what the transition to the NFL game was like. So here he is, guys, Sean Merriman. We're here at the NFL Draft. A lot of hype going on. I want to ask you about your draft experience and kind of what was, tell me a little bit about it. What was the most memorable part for you about the whole experience in and of itself? It was, uh, you know, I, I was around my family. Um, you know, I was invited to the combine, but I, I mean, I started to the draft, but I didn't go. Um, I, I wanted to be around my friends, coaches and family because just in case that, you know, something happens and you slip later on in the rounds. Um, I just remember my name being called and then that day, um, you know, everything that I worked for paid off. So was it when you kind of, what was the rush of feelings? Like, was it literally just like all the hope paid off or was it like now I'm on to the next step? Like what, what was all going through your head when your name was called? You know, I, I, I started to remember all the, the times of playing backyard football and football on the street, tackle, you know, tackle football and, um, you know, scoring touchdowns and, and, uh, and, and saying like, well, Deion Sanders or doing the primetime dance and just all the things that I did, uh, and, and, people I mimicked as a kid growing up, you know, now I'm playing on the same level. Um, and that was really going through my head. Man. I said, I can't, I can't believe this is, uh, this is happening. And you have that one day where you're celebrating you know, you're with your family and, and you realize that, uh, that now you're in NFL. And then after that, everything kind of smooths out and, you know, you got to get back to work. What was the biggest challenge for you from the transition from college to pro like and I, I know from outside looking in a lot of people talk about the speed of the game and everything like that you had pretty good early on success but what was the biggest challenge for you from the transition from college to pro well athletically it was the challenge wasn't there um it was taking everything in i mean i was one of the youngest drafted I was drafted at 20 i believe so i was one of the youngest drafted players ever at the time and, uh, you know, to be that young and have that much stuff come at you that fast, it's like, oh, 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 you know, trying to dodge and slow things down. So it was a transition of really becoming kind of a superstar in a way and becoming uh, more notable and people knowing you and trying to slow everything down. Um, and, and uh, you know, for the first time that that was to me was it was it was all fast, you know, straight from college, you got the combine, you got your off-season workouts, you get drafted, you go, then you're right in training camp. And so you miss that point of things slowing down for you. And I remember I, I didn't really catch up to everything until going into my second year where I had a first full off-season and I can sit back and breathe a little bit. So how do you deal with everything coming at you so fast? Like there's so many different things. Did you have people like help you, biggest mentors early on in the NFL that helped you work through these sorts of things and slow things down for you? Yeah, um, LeVar Arrington was uh, a really close mentor of mine, a linebacker for the Washington Redskins. Um, Ray Lewis was another one who, uh, you know, these guys took me under their wing early on. I think that not only they seen, um, you know, the talent that I had on the field, but my hunger to be a great person as well. And uh, I was I was really grateful and thankful for that because, you know, you, you can only hope that somebody in their position to kind of go back and, and – uh, give you the time that they didn't really have to do. So did they teach you like a particular lesson in terms of like blocking out all the noise? Because I feel like that's a huge thing in the NFL. Like you can't listen to what other people have to say. It, did they teach you how to be able to do that and how to be able to like not listen to the critics and the outside noise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, some of the mistakes they made when they were younger, some of the things they could have done different. Uh, they would say, hey, this is what I did when I was younger. I would have done this different. Yeah. And then for, for me, um, you know, I'm I'm smart, man. I, I like to learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah, you know, so if I uh, hear uh, uh, learn something, then you know it, it's a, a step that you don't lose. 
So, well, let's let's take it and you give it back then. If they told you some things that they failed or they screwed up and they shouldn't have done, what are some things that you would go tell rookie Sean Merriman that I, you probably shouldn't do or just like advice that you would give knowing what you know now? Uh, li- little stuff, man. Um, little stuff for me, it was more like, you know, time management, right? It was more time management because when you're a young, you know, kind of a superstar coming into his own, you know, everybody want a piece, right? So I'm a, I have a big heart and I love to give people time. I love to give people, uh, energy and just different stuff. And, you know, I would have managed spending time certain other places a little bit better when I was younger. Um, and really start zeroing in and focusing in on the things that are more important for long term. Uh, because that's, that's, you know, that's one thing that makes athletes, athletes in general, just the heart of, of giving back and, and being involved in so many things. Um, to really just cut things down and be more pinpoint focused on, on, on the longer term. And finally, no one better suited to round out what does football teach us than the 91 year old retired dean of NFL referees, Jim Tunney. Jim had a 31-year career in the NFL consisting of three Super Bowls. He talks about some of his best stories from the NFL and the lessons he learned on the field that he applied off the field in his everyday life. Before we get into Jim, I just want to say I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed the stories, the lessons, and the insight on what it takes to be a successful leader in the NFL, how you can take lessons from the field and apply them to life after the game, and much more. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll share it with a friend to get them inspired to start off this football season. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show so it can move up the podcast ranks and then get in front of more eyes and more ears. But for now, to round us all out, the Dean of NFL Referees, Jim Tunney. What are some of the common things that some of the greatest athletes have in terms of having the right attitude towards the game? When I first started in 1960, Jim Brown was playing for the Cleveland Browns. And I watched Jim Brown. I was a field judge, so it means I'm downfield 25 yards. So I would see Jim Brown come through the line of scrimmage, knock down the linebacker, and then run towards me and towards the goal line. And I, the thing I noticed about him when he got tackled, he, he never complained. He was never a, a guy who was a, a trash talker or a complainer. And I like that about Jim Brown. I like that about a lot of athletes that I've seen. I, I work for people like Joe Montana and Steve Young and people like that and watch their performance on field in terms of who they were, not as a football player, but as an individual, as how their attitude was, how they work with their teammates. Uh, I remember I worked a game one time with Jerry Rice when he first started in the NFL, his first game, and Joe threw a pass to him in the end zone, and he dropped the pass. First game in, in San Francisco's Candlestick Park, and Jerry Rice drops the ball, and we got back to huddle. Joe reached and just patted him on the back and said, don't worry, you'll catch the next one, Jerry. So building people up like that, watching examples like that, really was an inspiration for me in terms of how I perform my life. These are top athletes and under a great pressure, and they're performing at a, at a high level of integrity. Yeah. So you had to perform under pressure throughout your career because you you know had some of these biggest games that you that you called, and you've seen so many other people, some of these athletes perform under pressure. What do you think are some of the key things to perform under pressure at a high level? I think one of the biggest thing is, is keeping a smile on your face and enjoying what you're doing. And I always had fun on the field. In fact, in the crew, and I was a referee, so that means I was in charge of the crew. I was the crew chief. And I would always say to the guys before we went on the field, we always got our hands together as a team 
And I'll say, let's have fun today. It's just a game. We need to have fun. It's a, it's serious and it's a business and you, somebody's going to win or lose. Somebody's going to maybe lose their job. You don't want that to happen. But you can see the guys in their attitude of how they treat the players and how they deal with the players. Now, players and coaches are going to get upset with you when the calls that you make or maybe calls you don't make. Are they going to yell and scream at you and call your names and things like that? But we keep a smile on our face and say, deal with it properly. Deal with it. a lot of poise and a lot of confidence. And that was the thing that I enjoyed doing every Sunday afternoon. What do you think is kind of like the secret to that your career longevity, to having that sustained ex- excellence over so many years? I wrote a book, first book I wrote was called Impartial Judgment, meaning I don't care who wins. And I wrote in that book, you're only as good as your next call. When I walk on the field on Sunday afternoon, people could care less how many Super Bowls I had, how many, how much reputation I had, uh, what people thought of me in the past. You have to be good every Sunday afternoon. So you gear yourself to that and go into that game thinking, I'm going to do the right thing. I can't rely on my reputation. I can't rely on anything else but except of what I'm going to be able to do that Sunday afternoon with that player at that time, and you have to be sharp every minute. It's like any player or any coach. You've got to be the best you can all the time. You can't ease up and say, oh, well, I'll just coast through this game. You can't do that. As an official, you wouldn't last very long. So I use the expression, you're only good as your next call. So always look for something, how you can do something better. I would watch other officials and see the things they were doing and think, hmm, that guy's doing this. I like that. I'll do it. I can adjust to that. I can make my mechanics the, the way that person is doing it. And so it's it's good to watch other officials. And I, I carried that over, by the way, Nick, into the school business. When I, you know, on Sunday afternoon, I was on the football field. Monday through Friday, I was in the school business. I was a high school principal. And so I would carry that same teamwork thing to our teachers of how we can be better together as a teacher. And so and the principalships that I had, I really enjoyed being a principal because I was in working with maybe uh, 150 teachers uh, every every week and, and how they can help each other. So it was important for me to, to, uh, to, to utilize the things that I would learn in football for my school business or in my school business, uh, for example, when I was a high school principal at a place called Fairfax High School in West Hollywood, uh, I was assigned there from an East L.A. school, and I was a, have an athletic background, but they were a very academic school. And I wasn't coming from an academic background, much as I'm coming from an athletic background. But I worked with each one of them. I, I, they weren't always on my side, so how do I get people on my side? I imagine it as a, as a merry-go-round. You go around the merry-go-round, you reach out and you grab that gold ring. Well, every time so I'd, I'd grab this teacher and that teacher were, would be on my side and this one and that one. And again, building a team was what it's all about. So the thing on Sunday afternoon helped me in my school business Monday through Friday. The things on Monday through Friday helped me in my school, helped me on referee. So it was, it was a good combination. And a lot of our Officials have been teachers and, and principals and people like that. Uh, not so many businessmen. It's more businessmen now, but at one time it was just most, mostly teachers that really helped me compare the two jobs. 
Uh, I worked a game between Green Bay and Baltimore Colts in Green Bay one time, and I was a field judge under the goalpost. And the kicker kicked a field goal, and it was snowing and blow, wind was blowing in Green Bay, Wisconsin in December, as it usually does. And the ball was way above the crossbar, way above the post. And I had to call it good or bad, and I called it good. And Don Shule, to this day, won't forgive me for the fact that I missed the call. And <laughs> you, you had that good laugh about it over the time. I said, hey, coach, you won 347 games. So win another one. You're not going to break anybody's record. You got the record. And so we laughed about that over the years. So it was a mistake at the time. It was really important for the game. But as we went along, it became less important. And look at it that way. It's life is going to happen. You make mistakes are going to happen. And I've made, made more than one mistake. In fact, there was a game that I worked between Philadelphia Eagles and Dallas Cowboys in Texas Stadium. And Roger Stombuck was rolling out, and and he fell to the ground, and I thought he was down, so I blew my whistle. But he had fumbled the ball, and I couldn't see it. And the Philadelphia Eagle player, Bill Bradley, picked up and ran the end zone. And I had to take the touchdown away from him. It was a very important time in the game. And I was the coach from the Philadelphia Eagles at the time, a guy named Ed Kayak. And I walked over to Ed, and I looked him right in the face, just like I'm looking right at you in the face. And I said, Ed, I kicked it. I was wrong. I blew it. I'm sorry. I can't take it away from you. I, I, I'm, I've got to take the score away. I can't correct the mistake I made. He told me some years later, he said, you know that mistake you made in Dallas and Philadelphia? I said, yeah. He said, when you said you made a mistake, you disarmed me. I couldn't argue with you. I thought, well, you know, that's the right thing to do. If I made a mistake, admit the mistake. Instead of trying to cover and say, well, see, I couldn't see this coach. I blew the whistle. No, don't alibi. Don't make mistakes. Don't try to make it worse. Just say, hey, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. And move on. But that goes back to the belief that you're going to have in yourself. You're going to believe that you're a good official. You're going to believe that you're a good teacher. You're going to believe that you're a good principal. If you don't believe that, then when you have a mistake happen, you're trying to make excuses for why it went wrong. Don't worry about it. It happens to everybody. 